The following episode is brought to you by the American Urological Association. The American Urological Association is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, ACCME, to provide continuing medical education for physicians. For more information on how to claim CME credit or to view faculty disclosures, please visit the AUA University at auanet.org university. This episode is supported by independent educational grants from Estellas and Pfizer, Inc., AstraZeneca, Janssen Biotech, Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, Lantheus Medical Imaging, and Merck & Co., Inc., Good afternoon, my name is Jay Rahman and I am Professor of Urology at Penn State Health and Chair of the AUA's Office of Education. It's my pleasure to host another podcast in our educational series with this specific podcast focused on the early detection of prostate cancer, AUA SUO guideline from 2023. Joining me are two guideline members um, and really thought leaders in the field with regards to prostate cancer, both diagnostics and screening. Uh, I'd first like to introduce Dr. John Way. Dr. Way is professor of urology at the University of Michigan. He specializes in prostate cancer early detection and male voiding dysfunction and is funded by the NCI. And Dr. Sigrid Carlson, Dr. Carlson's director of clinical research at the Josie Robertson Surgery Center at Memorial Sloan Kettering and assistant attending epidemiologist who has dual appointments both in urology as well as the Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics with her research largely focused in the realm of prostate cancer. So first of all, uh, Sigrid and John, thank you so much for joining. Really delightful to have both of you here joining us and taking some time uh, as we approach the holidays and what is always a busy schedule to talk about the 2023 guidelines. It's our pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah, thanks for having us. So uh, maybe I would start off and, and turn it over to both of you before we, we go into some of the specifics of the guideline and some of the nuances. Maybe just give our listeners just a really high level view of what we're going to be covering maybe over the next 30 to 35 minutes or so. Sure, I'd be happy to. So we're going to discuss the uh, early detection prostate cancer guidelines that were released this year at the AUA. Um, the learning objectives that we'll cover is to discuss the potential benefits, the limitations, and controversies about prostate cancer screening uh, as up-to-date as our guidelines are in 2023. Uh, we will bring up uh, the key recommendations. We won't cover all of them uh, for, the, for time sake, but we will cover all the key ones, particularly where we think it is um, most significant on uh, clinical practice. And then we'll talk about how these... Um, uh, affect the clinical practice and how you would manage patients. Great. So, so I feel like, you know, anytime we, we do a guidelines type um, uh, podcast and to guidelines based talk, um, I think the first thing is um, really looking at the fact that this is at least on paper billed as an updated uh, AUA-SUL prostate cancer early detection guideline, but, but maybe updated isn't perhaps quite the right word. Maybe talk to us a little bit about um, maybe how is this different and, and how is this different from, from the prior AUA guidelines? And obviously for either of you to take. I'd be happy to take that one. So uh, 
as, as you pointed out, Jay, this is not an update. Uh, the 2013 screening guidelines were updated in 2018. Those uh, guidelines really focus on the screening and age-based uh, screening uh, decisions. Uh, the AUA uh, in 2021 decided to create a new set of guidelines. So we had uh, assembled a complete new panel and we were asked to come up with new key questions given all the changes that has happened in the past five to 10 years that had to do with early detection, you know, biomarkers, imaging, there was a lot of changes. So we started from scratch and um, we did a completely new systematic review. And that's what we're gonna be talking about today. So for obviously gui guidelines are perhaps one of the most um, consumed um, type of products that the AUA puts together. And, I, and that's not even true for the AUA alone. I think, think that whether you look at AUA guidelines, EAU, NCCN, so on and so forth, these are really, I feel like the most consumed elements. And, and certainly um, maybe one question for both of you is how should um, maybe somebody new to the guideline, how should people be um, looking at it? How should they be uh, approaching um, reviewing the, the recommendations of this guidelines and, and maybe what should they be looking for in the organizational structure of this guideline? Yeah, again, uh, that's, that's a great way to look at this. When you look at the unabridged document for these guidelines, our guidelines included, it can be quite daunting. There's a lot of references, a lot of text. Um, what uh, we did was we organized the guidelines into four parts, really. The first part is about prostate cancer screening. Think of that as the epidemiologic data, by and large, that's <clears> around <throat> the rationale and support the risk and benefits of doing screening. Uh, the second part talks about men who come into CU who are biopsy naive, say with an elevated PSA, what do you do? What are the key decisions? The third part talks about men who had a previous biopsy. And again, that's important because these men have a different pretest probability of having uh, clinically significant cancer. What to do for that group of men, how you evaluate, how you make decisions for biopsy. And the last section talks about different uh, pathology findings and also biopsy techniques. There are a lot of questions these days about, do you do transrectal, transperineal? Um, so we talk about that in the last section. So let, let's start with the first of these, and, and I think you've laid it out really quite nicely, but, but I feel like the, the, the opening kickoff per se is really this concept of prostate cancer screening and, and obviously contemporary prostate cancer screening. So could, could you talk a little bit, uh, again, either of you, just to be out um, some of the benefits um, of, of the, the new guideline with regards to screening and, and maybe some of the limitations that you as a guidelines panel identified as you were crafting um, the guideline statements. Yeah, we. Uh, it was wonderful to be part of, of this uh, panel. We had um, many meetings over Zoom, and you know it was still uh, daylight in on the West Coast and, and dark here on the East Coast. And we had long sessions wordsmithing all these uh, statements. We really thought about each and every one. So I'm sitting here with the guideline in front of me, and it's you know 47 pages, but 
really we, we kind of distill the essence down to these 35 statements. And so as John described, you know, there are four parts. And so the first part is then screening and that is 11 statements. And what's really nice about the AUA guideline is that it's really directed towards the clinician. So, you know, the statements would start with clinicians should or clinicians may. So to, to be very, you know, directly helpful to clinicians. So that's why we, we, formulated them that way to make them very, you know, efficient. Um, and so really what I would say is throughout the whole guideline, the benefits is that we really focus on identifying clinically significant prostate cancer. That's really the main focus, not just any prostate cancer, because any guideline can do that. But really, how can we best tailor screening and risk stratify screening to only pinpoint and find the cancers that we do want to find and avoid the overdiagnosis of low risk disease? So I would say that's the nuance in the guideline, you know, that that's that's new. Um, in terms of limitations, of course, you know, we wish we had a better screening test than the PSA, but, you know, that's what we, we have. So, you know, the current tests and the models, you know, may not necessarily have the test performance that we want to, you know, say with confidence that, you know, we can avoid biopsy altogether. But we have a pathway and we can combine all these measures, PSA, MRI, uh, biomarkers, risk calculators in a more, you know, nuanced way to to reach uh, finding the significant and avoiding overdiagnosis. So, so that's great, Sigrid. So, I mean, obviously, uh, I think, you know, you highlighted, I think, so eloquently, really, the benefit, which is not just um, identifying prostate cancer, but as you, as you said, it's really identifying clinically significant prostate cancer, which I feel like the thrust is largely uh, not only identifying that, but obviously um, identifying that disease, which is really the type of disease that we would think about uh, treating and therapy. So you talked a little bit about benefits. You talked about limitations, uh, but I'm sure you and the panel must come across some controversies um, in the in the existing literature. And and what were some of the controversies that um, that you came across as a group? And and uh, I, I I suspect you know the, anytime there's a controversy, there's no necessary black or white answer. Frankly, it's probably shades of gray. But what were some of the controversies that you both uh, identified along with the panel? I would say the you know is the PSA test the best screening test we have in 2023? And you know the answer is yes. It's still a very good marker of prostate cancer and also prognostic test of you know future lethal disease. So PSA is the mainstay. Is this you know, first line screening test. Uh, we, of course, also discussed whether or not PSA should be combined with DRE. And I think that was the most lengthy discussion we had in the guideline. Uh, so I think we ended up saying clinicians may use DRE alongside PSA. But if you look at the evidence and the randomized trials and the probase in, in Germany, you know, the, the positive predictive value of DRE for screening is very low. So the best utility of DRE is when the PSA is slightly elevated or above two, then you can, you know, combine them to increase risk stratification but we don't say that clinicians shouldn't be doing you know the both tests together if they want to um so i would say that's one of the controversies what about mri uh, what are the what were the thoughts on uh the panel with regards to mri and, and should that be uh routinely used should it be ubiquitous prior to any patient having a, a prostate biopsy you know, we spent so much time talking about imaging and MRIs on the panel. It's one of those things. I wouldn't say it's divisive, but uh, it's the data is good, um, but it's mixed. 
So uh, in the end, uh, we had to make some decisions. And because there aren't enough large randomized uh, or Cochrane data that supports using MRI for every patient before a biopsy, and we don't believe practically it should be done, uh, there, therefore we came up with uh, very specific uh, uh, guidelines statements regarding MRIs for the initial biopsy and repeat biopsy, which I'll go over in a little bit. So I, I, I was just uh, at the SUO and there was a very nice debate uh, that highlighted some of the randomized trials pertaining to transrectal and transperineal biopsy. Maybe talk a little bit about that. And, and obviously we're gonna go into a little bit more detail, I think in, in the next section on some of the specific recommendations that our listeners should walk away from. But, but um, I, I feel like the transperineal versus transrectal has sort of reached this uh, fervor uh, in the academic literature with regards to the ideal way to sample. Any thoughts from either of you on that? Yeah, you know, one of the things I would point out for our guidelines is uh, the way our process works is we're given a, a set of dates uh, that we did our systematic review. And if any literature came out even the day after our date, we did not include it. So I recognize that there are more uh, recent publications looking at uh, um, transrectal versus transperineal randomized studies. Uh, those did not make into the guidelines. And when we do an update in a few years, we certainly are likely to include those studies. So I apologize if the statements don't, natu uh, don't naturally match all of the literature that's out there as of today. Um, but yeah, it continues to be a controversy. When transperineal came by, everybody uh, was hot to try to try to learn it, to do it. The preliminary data, including the data from music in Michigan, suggested that there's a significant reduction in sepsis rates. More newer data would suggest maybe it's kind of equivalent. And you would think it would be better because it's transperineal versus uh, transrectal. However, the folks doing transrectal biopsies now are doing uh, culture-directed uh, antibiotic treatment. Uh, maybe they're doing a formalin dip. They may be using augmented antibiotics rather than just a single dose of, of Cipro. So the risk of E. Uh, uh, e. coli resistant ciprofloxacin is being managed much better now than it was in the past. And that may bring some parity to transrectal and transperineal biopsy. Yeah, and, and you know, to your point, you know, the the reality is, is that, that the whole purpose of when you look at guideline amendments and, and potential updates and the reason that so much of this is done every few years is the point you made, which is obviously the, the data that you collate and you make your decisions is based on a fixed point in time. And, and, and you know, rarely is that ever going to be static forever. And so uh, to your point, obviously, whether we're talking about method of biopsy or biomarkers or so on and so forth, I feel like as the literature and changes, uh, I think it is good that all of these panels reconvene periodically, or at least a subset of the panel reconvenes periodically to revisit the literature. So I'm going to start asking you all some of the specifics, because I think that's what really, you know, what we hope is a lot of our listeners walk away with the big, I would call them the big items that they should really know and take away from the guidelines work. And, and obviously for our listeners, for any of you that really want to do a deep dive, um, um, 
Dr. Carlson, Dr. Wei did uh, assemble, uh, and actually we, we will have it annotated on our site, the two um, uh, uh, sort of parallel papers that originated from that guideline in addition to the guideline itself. But my, my first question, and, and uh, for either of you, uh, well, let's just talk about screening. So um, when should we start screening and when should we stop screening um, men for prostate cancer? also discussed at length in the, in the panel uh, and you know very there's a lot of evidence of course to to review there from different trials and also observational studies so how do you synthesize that so we we kind of reached several statements to break that up um, so we would say that clinicians may begin screening between ages 45 to 50 in kind of the general population and then we have a separate statements about you know men at increased risk so that would be black ancestry, germline mutations, or strong family history. And for those men, we decide, uh, recommend that you know clinicians offer screening starting at 40 to 45. So you you start earlier for those men because of increased risk. Um, and then before you screen, of course, uh, AUA endorses uh, shared decision making. We don't we aren't very prescriptive in how to do that, but at least have a conversation about the benefits and harms before you draw the blood. Um, and then PSA is the first screening test. And maybe my my um, parallel question to you, Sigrid, is when should we stop? Um, you know, so that that's the front end of the spectrum, which was obviously you, you really high, nicely highlighted the at-risk population and the general population. Uh, but it's interesting. I, I was I just came from clinic, and I had a referral into my clinic for an 84-year-old who had a PSA of 7.5, and. Um, I uh, and so I, I was sort of laughing to myself because I knew we were going to do this podcast. And so obviously the question is um, when to stop. And maybe it's not black and white with regards to age. But what are what are some of the the the, the general considerations for when we can stop screening? And are there certain thresholds that we can use? Yeah, I think you know you're answering the question by using your sound clinical judgment, which it sounds like you did today also. So we, we didn't say a hard stop at a chronologic age, but instead we, we said clinicians may personalize, you know, uh, when to stop, you know, and when to discontinue screening based on patient preference, his age, PSA level, risk, life expectancy, general health. There are so many nuances to take into account there. So we kind of leave it up to each clinician to decide. I would add to that, uh, you know, Practically speaking, if you think about treatment for early stage prostate cancer, we don't tend to treat if men have a life expectancy less than 10 years. So it makes perfect sense that we should apply at least that for screening. So if we don't treat within 10 years, we shouldn't be screening if they have less than 10 years. And I think that makes it a, a sort of a rule of thumb, if you will, for those who are thinking about screening. So in your clinic, you look at the guy, he's 84. You can go on, get a risk uh, life expectancy calculator from some life insurance company, Northwestern Mutual. You put it in and you say, yeah, your life expectancy, and you know, you could do this, is seven years. It's probably not worth mm -hmm. uh, to do it. It's not in your best interest to be screening. You know, look at that. I think it makes it easy for a lot of folks to judge. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point. That's uh, and I, it's interesting. I, I do very much. I don't know if I use that specific one, but I do. I do use a life expectancy calculator because I do feel like it objectifies. You know, you hate to have the gestalt. You would like to be able to have some objective so that you're you're not potentially biasing 
uh, your, your sort of um, uh, decision-making with the patient just based on, I don't know, what your preconceived notions are. So we talked about when you start, we talked about maybe um, broad considerations of when we should stop screening. What about what interval should we be screening at? So here we can say more strongly uh, that uh, clinicians should offer regular PSA testing every two to four years uh, for people between 50 and 69. And that comes from the randomized trials in the Utebor trial and the ERSPC trial. So that's why the evidence level and the grade is kind of stronger for that statement. But we also have a statement right below where it says clinic clinicians may personalize the rescreening interval. And then you can adapt that again to all these factors that we discussed. Because there are other studies that suggest that you can have a longer interval for men at lower risk and vice versa. So you can again use your sound judgment. And you know there are multiple studies, for example, um, using the PSA level and a man's age to determine how often to screen. So for example, if someone is age 60 and has a PSA less than one, the future risk of something bad happening to him in the future in terms of metastatic disease or prostate cancer death is very, very low. So for those men, you can prolong screening or even discontinue screening. So again, we leave it up to clinicians to use sound judgment about you know, the interval, but it can definitely be extended for men at lower risk. So what, what, is, what does it mean when, when the guideline talks about risk stratified screening? What, what does that mean exactly? So, um, you know, in the ideal world moving forward, every single individual that comes in for screening, we would look at the individual, determine a risk. And if that individual is really at low risk for having prostate cancer, we say, you know what, you can have a longer interval. There is data out there, say 60 year old man comes in, PSA is less than one his lifetime risk of dying for prostate cancer, certainly less than 1%, right? And for those folks, you would think they don't need to be screened frequently, if at all anymore. Some people would say not at all. So the idea is tailoring it to that risk. Now, I, I believe there are ongoing trials to look at risk-based screening on, on longer-term outcomes. I don't think those have been published yet. So maybe in a future update, we will have better data on that. And there are also risk calculators, not just life expectancy calculators, but other calculators, of course, that we review also in the guideline that can be used to determine the need for biopsy, for example. So throughout the whole pathway of early detection, we think about risk, you know, who, who, who's the population at risk? How can we mitigate risk and how can we stratify risk before biopsy as well? So uh, you brought up the, the concept of risk calculators, and, but maybe um, I'll even ask you a broader question, which is, and you talked about risk calculators playing into the role of biopsy, but, but maybe talk a little bit about some of the other factors that all play in when you get to this, this decision-making element of, does a patient need a biopsy, yes or no? Um, maybe things as simple as, you know, how you look at PSA and, and interval of rechecking PSA all the way up to more complex or more involved studies. Maybe could you both talk about that, the decision making for biopsy and what tools you can use that help you sort of equivocate that decision? Well, I would say in addition to a man's, you know, age and general health and the PSA level, one very simple thing to do is just to repeat the PSA. You know, we don't have that landmark study by Dr. Eastam and JAMA 20 years ago showing that PSA fluctuates up and down. We have an asset submitted to AUA, hopefully it will present next year, uh, confirming the same thing. 
really, you know, between 20 to 40 percent of men will have a PSA value that goes down to normal if you repeat it again in a couple of weeks. So that's a very, very simple thing to do that can then avoid a large number of biopsies. And then the other thing we also emphasize in the guideline is to not use empiric antibiotics to treat a PSA level because that's, you know, not, not wise practice. Uh, and then PSA velocity, you know, it, it sounds like it, it's a good idea, but actually the evidence is not so strong, you know, so we say that it should not be used as the sole indicator, you know, for the next steps, because the PSA level in and of itself is strong enough to, to determine the risk. I, I would uh, also add to that, you know, it used to be a simple process of screening. PSA is greater than four, you get a biopsy, right? Now it's not so easy. I think because there are so many nuances to it and patients are coming in with, if you will, uh, different things in mind that they want. Some absolutely don't want a biopsy. Some say they want a biopsy. I think talking to the patient and engaging them in shared decision-making is important. And, and that's emphasized in our guidelines. Maybe Sigrid can, can speak to that. I know she's done some work on that. Yeah, no, definitely. You know, PSA screening is a preference-sensitive decision, and there are so many downstream consequences. And like you said, we emphasize that having those conversations both before the blood draw, but also before the biopsy. You know, it depends on the initial repeat biopsy setting. Like you said, some men are very averse to having biopsy again if they have had, you know, bleeding or infection. So, you know, you take everything into account and you might, you know, in some cases be able to delay biopsy. And so now we have all this, you know, toolbox with everything in it that we can use before jumping to biopsy. So in addition to risk calculators, you know, there's a multiple biomarkers that we review also in the guideline. And also, of course, you know, pre-biopsy MRI really has been a game changer in recent years. And so as Dr. Wei mentioned, we that was a very lengthy conversation on our a guideline panel about the use of, of MRI. Yeah, I, I think you you both raised so many good questions, and I'm sure the the related you know dilemma that comes up is that there are so many more tools that one can use in the initial screening setting. I think, Sigrid, your point, the low hanging fruit is obviously. Um, repeating the PSA to make sure that you're not going down this rabbit's hole when you don't need to. But then we have so many more tools, as you alluded to, you know, we've got urinary biomarkers, we've got serum biomarkers, we've got imaging. And, and I'm sure that one of the challenging things for the panel is trying to think about this just from a cost perspective, because every one of these tests you order, especially in a, in a screening setting, um, is, is probably undoubtedly just incremental costs. And that was probably one of the factors, I, I don't wanna speak for you, but I'm guessing that must've been one of the factors of discussion is, you know, how much and, and you know, what to get in this initial setting. Yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, however, I would, I would say that um, in our process for determining these recommendations, we specifically uh, did not include costs as, as part of the reasoning. Uh, that's part of our, our process. We want to look at the scientific evidence and not so much the financial uh, uh, implications, even though I acknowledge those are very important in the real world. So let's talk about maybe, we've talked about screening. Let's talk about maybe the, the whole biopsy scenario. And let's start with maybe the initial biopsy. And, and what are the key recommendations pertaining to initial biopsy from the panel? Yeah, uh, we have a lot of uh, good uh, recommendations here that are new. I would start with the uh, statement number 12. 
sounds basic, but this is the idea that you, when you talk to the patient about undergoing a biopsy, let them know you may find low-grade prostate cancer that does not need to be treated with surgery or radiation. Very common. I would say my practice, half the men I do biopsies on come back with group grade one, typically follow with active surveillance. And why it's important to bring up before the biopsy is it helps them down the street, down the road to accept active surveillance. It's already planted in their mind that they may find low-grade cancer, not bad, don't worry about it, doesn't need to be treated. Telling them up front is very important. As you uh, pointed out, Jay, um, MRI is the 900-pound gorilla for early detection. You know, everyone wants it. Uh, it. It's one of those things that gives you this guttural response. It's like a chest x-ray has a spot, I must have cancer. So MRI, clip, uh, patients think of it kind of like that. My MRI shows a spot, right? So everyone wants to do a imaging study. They want to do an MRI. The data for MRI before the initial biopsy is mixed. There are certainly large studies that show doing an MRI reduces the detection of group grade one cancer while increasing the detection of group grade two or higher cancers, clinically significant cancer. But there are also many studies that say it's equivocal or not different. So uh, looking at the data in, in a more of a systematic review, we decided that there was enough data for us to just say everyone should get an MRI before initial biopsy, okay? Different when we get to the repeat biopsy. And of course, if you get an MRI, you have to do something with it. So if the MRI shows a lesion, and typically in the literature, pyrads three, four, five would be considered biopsy targets. Some people only biopsy four and fives, something like that. The idea is you would obviously do a biopsy of the target. Um, the AUA recommend, uh, recommendations are two, two needle cores, at least two needle cores of each target. We also say you may, and this is the nuanced part of the, the, the statements, you may also do a systematic biopsy, not required. And it's interesting when you uh, talk about, uh, look at the literature for number of cores taken, most of the studies out there looking at the number of cores taken per MRI target come from studies where they only do MRI targets. They're not coming from studies that do MRI targets with systematic, okay? And we uh, had presented some data about that uh, at the AUA last year. Now, if a patient comes in, they get the MRI and there is no lesion on the MRI, we felt strongly that in this setting, the patient should have a systematic biopsy, okay? We believe that the risk of missing clinically significant cancer, which typically is somewhere between 10 and 15% on a negative MRI, is enough that they should have a systematic biopsy if they've never had a biopsy before. Okay. So that's the initial biopsy setting. What um, perhaps changes when we look at the repeat biopsy setting? Is there, are, are there any um, maybe variances or, or does, does the literature um, more strongly or more compellingly maybe talk about imaging or, or and did the panel feel like that plays a greater role or, or any of the other uh, biomarkers or any of the other assays? Uh, thank you for bringing that up. I should mention biomarkers because that certainly applies to the initial biopsy. And, and uh, going back to initial biopsy first, the use of uh, biomarkers, that is non-MRI, it could be urine biomarker, it could be uh, blood biomarkers. We believe these are supplemental tests. They should not be reflexively ordered on every single patient. And they should be used primarily when the clinician and or the patient feels that they feel mixed. They don't know if they should get a biopsy or not get a biopsy. And it can be used to maybe confirm that your 
positive predictive value. You have a uh, high likelihood of having significant cancer to convince the patient or to convince the clinician that the risk of having significant cancer is really lower than he thought or she thought. So that's the role biomarkers. Don't do it reflexively. Do it when it will make a difference. That patient with PSA of 30, you're going to biopsy him no matter what the mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. secondary biomarker shows. So don't bother. Um, going on to the repeat biopsy, yes, you're right, Jay. Uh, there are significant differences, and this is driven primarily because the pretest probability of clinically significant cancer is lower in men who've already had a uh, previous biopsy, particularly if they had a previous biopsy relatively recently. In this setting, um, the role of PSA as a screening test is not as good. I mean, if you look at the AUC, it's almost 50% for men who had a previous biopsy. So using PSA alone isn't good. We felt, uh, and the data suggests, MRI and urine biomarkers could help in the setting, okay? So for a patient who comes in, let's say he had a uh, elevated PSA or rising PSA, had a biopsy already, we believe that if he hasn't had an MRI yet, now's the time to get an MRI. And in my practice, if they had MRI two, three years ago, I would get another MRI, right? So getting an imaging study is good. I also uh, use um, biomarkers in this uh, scenario as well. You know, and patients who come to see me for initial biopsy because I I do research in biomarkers say, how come I'm not getting that urine test that you know you wrote this paper on? And I say, because I don't think it's going to change my decision. Very different in the repeat biopsy setting. That's when I will typically order that. So using uh, imaging and urine biomarkers repeat biops repeat uh, biopsy setting is very helpful. In terms of what to do with the MRI, so now you get, let's say you decide to get an MRI for the repeat biopsy patient, you're going to have the same scenario, right? You find a lesion on the MRI, of course, you're going to do a targeted biopsy. Like the initial biopsy setting, we say you may also do a systematic biopsy, okay? So we don't say you should, you may. For patients who on the MRI do not show any lesions, unlike the initial biopsy, we now say you may do a systematic biopsy. We feel that the... Uh, uh, pre-test prob probability of having a significant cancer is low enough that maybe you don't have to do a systematic biopsy, you know? And when I have this discussion with the patients, I always use shared decision-making, make sure they understand that I could still be missing a significant cancer, although I think that risk is lower. No, that's great. That, that really, you summarized that so well. So maybe we'll just finish off this last section talking a little bit about biopsy technique. Um, so uh, obviously we talked about initial biopsy, we talked about repeat biopsy, those are just temporal sort of relationships. So if we talk a little bit about technique itself, which may be relevant for whether it's the initial or whether it's the repeat, maybe some, some of the, the specifics regarding technique. And obviously we, we briefly talked about this at the beginning when we talked about transperineal versus transrectal, but I'm sure there may be other nuances to it. Yeah. So there's two, two uh, recommendations I really want to uh, bring up here. So one is the idea of taking two cores. The data out there is not um, perfect in terms of how many needle cores to take. And uh, the point I would make out that I think is still uh, in flux, if you are a clinician that only does targeted biopsies, the data out there really speaks to you because the literature is comes from studies where they only do targeted biopsies. For Clinicians that do tar uh, targeted biopsies along with uh, systematic biopsies at the same time, the role of taking more targeted biopsies is not very strong. In other words, we believe by taking uh, uh, more biopsies per target, 
doesn't help if you also do systematic biopsies. The systematic biopsies is almost like taking more biopsies of your target. It's it's catching something that you may miss. Okay, um, so we do recommend taking two. Uh, primarily if you are doing the MRI uh, target only and you're not also doing systematic biopsy. The other uh, recommendation I would bring up is whether to do a transrectal or transperineal. Uh, transperineal is out there. I have patients that come in asking for transperineal biopsies now. Um, whether or not that is the right thing to do for everybody is unclear. There is a randomized clinical trial that was published recently uh, in Journal of Urology, I believe, uh, that showed equivocal findings in terms of sepsis between transrectal and transperineal. It was single institution randomized. Well done. Uh, there is ongoing a multi-institutional uh, study uh, uh, funded by PCORI, led by Jim Hu uh, out of Cornell, that is still enrolling patients. We think that large randomized clinical trial, when published, will give us also some uh, more definitive answers. And that's why when we looked at that rating, it was kind of a uh, conditional recommendation. And we say, you can right, right now, you can do a transrectal or transperineal. Of course, we think the best practice is if you're going to do a transrectal, do something else to reduce the risk of having uh, uh, cipro-resistant E. coli be a sepsis problem. Uh, transperineal, just do the biopsy. And, and many folks uh, like my buddy, Arvin George, who's now at Hopkins, he doesn't even use antibiotics at all. He just goes bare on those patients. So Sigrid, as we sort of wrap up the podcast, maybe I'm going to turn it to you and, and sort of throw out the question, which is, you know, how, what do you think the implications are going to be for this guideline? How, how do you think it's going to change practice? Um, and, and how do you think, you know, that we're going to start looking at prostate cancer and early detection, maybe, maybe differently or hopefully differently going forward? Well, uh, in clinical practice, I think, you know, these guidelines provide evidence and guidance for many, you know, if not most of the clinical decisions involved in prostate cancer and early detection. So hopefully we have provided, you know, urologists like yourself with a roadmap that you can bring to your clinical practice with all these statements. And, you know, here's how I, what I can use them in my daily practice. Uh, so we wanted it to be very practical. Um, and also, again, emphasizing shared decision-making. Uh, I can't stress that enough. You know, it's a necessary part of patient counseling in 2023 and 2024. You know, patients are very smart, they're very informed, and they want to be involved in their own decision-making. So having that shared decision-making with the patient and the clinician. So thinking about their preferences and their values for the PSA test, screening, biomarkers, MRI, biopsy, throughout the whole whole chain, it involve the patient. Don't know, Dr. Wei, if you want to add something. No, I think that's right. Um, uh, unlike the 2013 uh, screening guidelines that we the AUA had put out, the guidelines you're seeing now are much more comprehensive. They go from you know, initial screening all the way to even the pathology, some of the recommendations regarding pathology findings. Uh, it's pretty uh, uh, comprehensive. We have um, flow diagrams to go step by step, and some people prefer to follow those flow diagrams. Um, but really, you could take these statements and hang it up on your pin board next to your computer and clinic, and anytime a controversy comes up, we're likely to have that statement covered somewhere in our guidelines. Well, that's great. Well, I want to uh, thank you, Sigrid and John, uh, again, for taking some time. I think uh, you, you both did a wonderful job, sort of, you know, it's always helpful when you have these guidelines, especially ones that can be potentially dense to really have some of the key points distilled down for our listeners. And I really appreciate you both uh, taking some time to join us today and, and uh, 
you know, educating myself and our audience on the 2023 early detection of prostate cancer guideline. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Uh, for our listeners, uh, we really want to thank you for your attention. Uh, for more information, please visit us at auanet.org university. And uh, on that site, we do have several references pertaining to the material discussed during this episode, uh, both the guideline itself, as well as the two parallel publications in the journal Urology. And obviously, um, uh, although we have uh, Dr. Wei and Dr. Carlson as our speakers uh, and our guests today, obviously, as they would well acknowledge, it's a team effort from all of those on the guidelines panel, uh, of which it's a very esteemed group and, and um, they're all listed on our website uh, with the guidelines. So Sigrid, John, my sincere thanks. I uh, thank you again for taking some time at the end of the day. I wish you both a very happy uh, holiday and hopefully get to see you sometime soon. Likewise. Happy holidays.